This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So yesterday we did this prayer workshop and one of the prayers that I was teaching the folks who were there is what's called a litany, right? A litany uh, is kind of just this call and response thing. And we're going to try one this morning. I wrote one this morning before I came. So we're going to do a litany together. All right, I'm going to say some lines, but your line, as soon as I finish a line, is going to be clothe us with Christ. So practice it with me on three. You're going to say clothe us with Christ. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Clothe us with Christ. All right, good, good job. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a prayer here, a litany prayer. In our baptisms, O oh Lord, clothe us with Christ. And we ask again today, O oh Lord, clothe us with Christ. We cover our brokenness with nice clothes, but we pray, clothe us with Christ. Our true garments are tattered and worn, so please clothe us with Christ. The old self has been crucified with you, Lord, so clothe us with Christ. Give us priestly garments. Clothe us with Christ. Give us royal garments. Clothe us with Christ. As your bride, give us wedding garments. Clothe us with Christ. Let us put on the armor of Christ. Clothe us with Christ. Come on, let us walk in steadfastness. Clothe us with Christ. Let us be the feet that brings good news. Clothe us with Christ. Let our banner be clear. Clothe us with Christ that we are yours, O Lord. Amen. Clothe us with Christ. Yes? Amen. God is good. All the time. (laughs) Good, good, good. So if I were a betting man, If I were a betting man, I'd bet this morning that everyone here or this afternoon, with the exception of maybe a kid or two, um, is familiar with what we call hand-me-downs. Everybody everybody know what a hand-me-down is, yeah? Yes? Anybody not know what a hand-me-down is? All right, so we all know if you grew up with an older sibling, uh, you're probably very familiar with hand-me-downs. For me, I grew up as the older brother of a younger sister, and so admittedly, I didn't get a lot of Uh, hand-me-downs. Those were the times, however, uh, there were times when I'd inherit something, say, from my older cousins, right? Um, Something bequeathed to me by no choice of my own. For my male and female cousins, though, hand-me-downs were very much a part of their lives. It was an economic act, really. It was decided on by the adults. The kids, they had no say in the hand-me-down issue, right? The second, third, and fourth in line, they always watched the old, what the oldest got because they knew eventually they were going to get it. They were going to inherit it. And chances are, when they got it, by the time they got it, it wasn't going to fit right. And so the shoes would maybe be a little bit too big, or the pants would be a little bit too short. The t-shirts would, would have some pit stains or some mustard stains on them or something. And While I never really had to deal much with it, I'm pretty sure 
that inheriting broken in undies uh, isn't something that most kids enjoy, right? <laughs> so, so being, being an older brother of a younger sister, like I said, I didn't have a lot of hand-me-downs. But ironically, right, when I went to college, like a lot of college students, I went through this phase where it was kind of cool and trendy to go to the local Goodwill or to go to the local Salvation Army and shop for hand-me-downs. I guess I feel like I got passed over and missed that stage in my life, but I was actually spending money, right, on second and third and fourth clothes and shoes and the like. The retro or vintage look, I guess, was kind of a fashion statement, but you know, me and my friends, we were seeking, purposefully seeking hand-me-downs. And we were willing to work, and we were willing to spend money on these hand-me-downs. It's weird, right? Many businesses today, like their whole business model is centered around hand-me-downs. Handed. Remember the story, right? In Genesis 3, they had tried to make themselves garments of leaves. You remember this? They had tried, Adam and Eve, to make garments of leaves. But sooner or later, they changed outfits. Right before they left the garden, they got new outfits. And in Genesis 3.21, you remember, we read that the Lord made them garments. Clothes from animal skin. Leather, perhaps. <laughs> Can you imagine Eve walking around with tight leather, leather pants on, right, in the garden? <laughs> right? Um... And Adam walking around with like leather chaps and a vest. Like, what did they look like? What was good? So these garments, as we talked about before, the, the first animal death we hear about in scripture. These garments that Adam and Eve put on just before they left the garden were garments of death. They wore death. Upon their exit from the garden, they were marked by their clothing wearing death clothed in death, and they left the garden of their infancy covered by garments that God had made for them. While Adam and Eve carried a part of Eden out with them, they also carried death out with them. And in time, you know what? Adam bequeathed those garments of death to his son, Seth, who in turn gave the garments to Methuselah, and he transmitted them to Noah, who took them into the ark perhaps to preserve them for the time when the world would be recreated following the flood. And Noah in turn, maybe he handed them down. And so there's this succession of things that follows a chain of command, a process, a hand-me-down path. And as I was ruminating on this concept of hand-me-downs this week in general, and Noah's hand-me-downs in particular, the thought came to mind <laughs> that hand-me-downs, right, are initially perceived as negative. Most people, when they think of them, think of tattered pants and worn shoes, thinned-out T-shirts or whatever. But in contrast to the negative side, there's a positive side of hand-me-downs too. We've all seen the movies, right, where the older jock brother gives his letterman jacket, he hands it down to the younger sibling. When my grandpa died, uh, his poem books were hand-me-downs to me. When I began my PhD studies, my friend Tim, he handed me down a German-French-English New Testament. 
that his wife had inherited from her grandpa. And she wasn't too happy that he gave it to me, but um, my first car was a used one, a hand-me-down from my step side of the family. Some hand-me-downs are invaluable. They become keepsakes. They become mementos that we attach memories to, things that carry some meaning for us. Some hand-me-downs are negative, some not so much. They're positives. But here's the thing. Whether we realize it or not, we're all in the business of hand-me-downs. Period. Full. Stop. Do you realize that? You're handing on something to those who come after you. Every last one of you in this room right now. You might be handing it on to kids or grandkids or co-workers or peers or whatever. But it's virtually in an inescapable fact of life of reality that we are all hand-me-downers. We all, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land. Sound familiar? Yes? So you see a lot of head shaking, sounds familiar. The fear of you and the dread of you will come over every animal of the land, every bird of the sky, everything that moves along the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They're delivered into your hand. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. As I gave you the green herb, I've given everything to you. But flesh with its life, its blood, you shall not eat. Surely for your blood and your life, I'll require an accounting. At the hand of every animal, I will require it. At the hand of humanity, at the hand of someone's brother, I'll require human life. In other words, don't kill, don't murder. Whoever sheds human blood, their blood will be shed by humanity. For God made humanity in his own image. And look how it ends again. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase abundantly in the land and multiply in it. And so the last few weeks, we've been considering many of the connections between the opening chapters of Genesis and these chapters about Noah, the ark, the flood. And immediately then, you should notice that connection right there, be fruitful and multiply in verse 9-1 and verse 9-7, and how it connects back to chapter 1 of Genesis. 122, 128, and in the context of this flood that's just ended, Right, the flood just ended. They've come out of the ark now. The first command to be fruitful and multiply, it's given to the animals. That was back in chapter 8, 17. And now here, it's given again to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. And so hopefully, you're developing this observation skill, this noticing skill, and noticing some of these things on your own. And remember, I've been saying from the start, this be fruitful and multiply command is the key to all of Genesis. It just keeps going. All through, everything sort of builds on this be fruitful and multiply. It persists throughout. And so I want you to see something really, really important here. If we compare Genesis 1.28 to 9.1, look at this. Put on your observation glasses and put your skills to work here. Look, 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, tame and subdue it or rule and govern the fish of the sea, and so on. And then look at 9.1. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land. What do you notice? That bit about subduing is gone in chapter 9. That bit about ruling or governing is gone in chapter 9. It's no longer there. 
It's gone. That should like stand out. It's gone. If we look at uh, verse 2, we, we remember it talks about uh, all the animals are now going to start fearing humanity and they've been given into humanity's hand, but there is no command to subdue them and govern them or rule them. And so now God has modified his original command and essentially it's just been whittled down. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the land. And so this is the fourth speech to Noah that we have from God here. And it begins and ends with that same exact command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the land. Sandwiches, everything in between. This brings us to our word of the week. By the, actually, you're getting two words of the week. I don't know what that mess is there on the, the second word, but two words of the week. The first is antediluvian, and the first is postdiluvian. The definitions are really, really simple. These are just fun scholarly words, research words. Antediluvian means the time before the flood. Postdiluvian means the time after the flood. And so the point is this, that the command to humans in the, the post-diluvian state after the flood is slightly different, but importantly different than in the antediluvian stage. Now we're moving toward this image, not of humanity, watch this, not of humanity ruling and subduing creation, but working in conjunction with it after the flood. Whoo, you catch that? Before, the command was to rule and govern and subdue the land. And now, after the flood, to work in conjunction, no ruling and subduing the land anymore, the creation. And no more killing, no more murder. Humans are to work in conjunction with one another now as well. This is another reason I'm a pacifist. I can't in good conscience serve the God of the living when I'm taking the life of someone or contributing to something that's taking from womb to tomb, right? I'm not just pro-life. Pro-life's good and fine. I'm not just, I'm whole life. I'm whole life. My theology, my beliefs derived from Scripture unabashedly whole life. Whole life. I advocate for life in the womb. I stand against abortion firmly. Uphold the sanctity of life to the unborn. And I stand against the death penalty firmly. <laughs> Many people actually use these verses to uphold something like the death penalty or whatever. I, I want to just briefly, I want to go on a tangent for just a second about this, all right? Um, we can't use these verses for that. The, the differences are just too great, all right? Firstly, we live in what's called a democratic republic today. And in our context, God is largely being removed from the picture, yeah? You know this. You, you see it happening all around you. In ancient Israelite society, however, they didn't have a democratic republic. They had a theocracy. God was at the top and he ruled. He was the ruler. So if a theocratic government sought to take a life, they always had to do so in the name of God. As though they were standing in God's place with God's sanction to do this. That's not how our government works. Come on, you can't compare the two. They're so different, completely different pages. Our government might think they're playing God, but they're not speaking for God. It's a major, major difference, and we can't overlook that. 
Our societies are completely different. We, there's a scholar, Robert Noose. He points out that in ancient Israelite society, there were no prisons. <laughs> Especially not like we have today, right? Uh, the industrial prison complex that we have. There were no for-profit prisons in ancient Israel. There was no mass incarceration in ancient Israel. But we have prisons all over the place. Our government loves prisons, right? They love prisons. They make a lot of money off prisons. And so I think that's a major difference. And I uphold the sanctity of life from womb to tomb, womb to tomb, because I am a servant of the living God who loves life, right? And I care about the sanctity of life from beginning to end, how I treat other people, how I treat other people's bodies, how I treat creation. It's not, this is not a liberal scripture lean, or a liberal lean, it's a scripture lean. <laughs> creation care, human care, soul care. It leads me to my next point, this, about... Yell for a minute, there we go, thank you. I think we pretty much, guys, have misunderstood the rainbow. Okay? I am. So I'm a, I think we've misunderstood the rainbow, right? Let's look at these next verses. We're going to talk about this rainbow. Because we live in the land of rainbows. Look at this. God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, see, I'll establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, every animal of the land with you, from all that go out of the ship to every animal of the land, I'll establish my covenant with you. All flesh will not be cut off again by the waters of the flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy what? The land. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. And every living creature, catch that, that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it'll be a sign of a covenant between me and the land. When I bring a cloud over the land, the rainbow will be seen in the cloud. I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters will no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow will be in the cloud. I will look at it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between No. This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the land. Did you see how 9-9 and 9-10 go together there? God makes a covenant not just with Noah and his family, but his covenant is also made with all the animals, all of creation. Right? You can hear the animals cheering, right, about this. You can hear the land cheering about this. You see, we, we've read this story of God's covenant with Noah kind of as if it was about us only. <laughs> it is his covenant with Noah, but it's more than that. The covenant extends in three directions. 
God, humanity, and creation. The three are supposed to work in tandem. God working with humanity, humanity working with creation, animals and land, and all of it working symbiotically, working together. And so there are two things I need us to get here, to dial into. The first is what I just said. There's a three-way covenant between God, humanity, and creation, especially the animals and the land. Now, I know we did a review last week. I want to back up one more time and just in a step-by-step, systematic way, I just want us to walk through how we got to where we are. But as we do this, I want you to like zero in on how much the text talks about the land, okay, the creation, the land, the ground, the earth. So this, this by the way, the Hebrew word here is ha'aretz. It means land or ground or earth. And it's the same in most translations. Look at this. Ha'aretz. Look, God called the dry ground in 110 earth or land, and it was good. And then God says to the animals, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the what? The land and the sea. And then he says, speaks to humans, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the what? The land, right? And then in 2.5, there's no human there yet to help cultivate the land. And then we go into to, to, uh, three, this is where we get Name's Adam in Hebrew. He's named after the ground, which is Adama, right? So his, word, his name is a play on the, the word ground. And so the earth or land is then cursed because of human sin. Do you know the land was cursed because of human sin? And then humanity's clothed in death, as we just talked about. And so then we have this first murder, right? Cain kills his brother Abel, and you remember this. That when he killed his brother, Abel didn't speak in the whole story. But as soon as he gets killed, his blood seeps into the ground and the land cries out. It's an amazing image. And so then we have these next few passages. Keep in mind the land here. God saw the land had been corrupted by humans. The land was filled with violence and God says, I'm going to destroy it all. And then Noah takes from the land these trees to build this ark to live in. And God reiterates, or is going to die, and God reiterates, I'm going to wipe the land clean. And the floodwaters then came and engulfed the land. And this flood, it's a purifying act, and it cleanses the land. It, literally, the water puts distance between humans and the ark and the land. And then there's this command to the animals after the flood to be fruitful and multiply and increase in number on the land. You see this, the land is everywhere. And then in 821, to everything, all, I'll never again curse the ground because of humanity or the land because of humanity, nor destroy every living creature. That because of is really, really, really important. You see what just happened there? The land receives a promise from God. God speaks to the land and says to it, I will never destroy the land again. I will never destroy you again, land, because of humans. Because of humanity's evil and violence. See, we've, we've got this wrong. We've read this flood story as if God's promising me and you, us, that we'll never send a flood to get rid of humanity. No, 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 no. Not what the text says. 
creation, I'll never destroy you again because of or on account of human violence. Endure such. But if humans work in cooperation with God and his creation, will be well. So we get to this then. So humanity, God says, post-flood, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land, the earth, the ground. So humanity, again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, land, the ground. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by a flood, nor will I destroy the earth or land on account of humans. And then watch this. God puts a rainbow in the sky. And it's the sign of a covenant, the sign between God and every living creature. The rainbow is a sign for God. It's a sign for God between him and the land. God remembers the covenant between humanity and every living creature of all flesh. And he puts this rainbow there as a reminder. So no less than five or six times here, right here do we find God reiterating his promise with the animals in the land. They will not be punished again for humanity's wickedness and violence. Humans, however, will reap the consequences of their evils and violence. And in 916, this is not just any old covenant. Notice, it's a covenant that is everlasting, which means all the covenants that come after it are going to build on it. It's an everlasting covenant that God will not destroy the land again so much for the rapture. Take God at his word, <laughs> right? It's an everlasting covenant. It's made with all the land and all the creatures. God says he's not going to destroy it. And if you've ever been taught, right, that there's going to be a fire at the end of time and the earth is going to burn up, the globe is going to burn up in a fire, show me. That is not what this text says. God promises from the jump, right out the gate, <laughs> not going to destroy the land on account of humans again. The earth will not pass away and burn up and so on. No, it'll stand. And Jesus will return, as we discussed months ago in our revelation. So he's going to renew this place. And in the meantime, he's invited us and he's tasked us with preparing it. So ecology meets theology, eco-theology. That's what scripture itself is saying. God saves humanity with the environment, not out of it. We got to read closer. We got to handle scripture responsibly. Now this rainbow. First thing about the rainbow is this. It's not a reminder to us. Man, we've, we've flipped the story and made the, the rainbow a reminder to us. It's not. In the verses 9:16, God says, the rainbow will be in the cloud and I will look at it. Is what I will look at it. That I may remember. Right there in the text. I will look at it that I may remember the everlasting covenant that I've made. 
The rainbow is God's reminder to God's self. God needs reminders? What? God needs, God needs, the text says this. It's God's reminder to himself. God put this bow in the sky to remind himself. We've turned it into a reminder for us. We got to know the scriptures. We got to read them close. Study for real, right? We get so much bad theology and all this junk theology and junk doctrine and junk teachings and churches like start to form cults and go off the rails because they don't read the scripture closely and they don't have pastors and teachers who teach them to read the scripture closely. We gotta read the scripture closely. How in the world could we have read this all these years, all this time and missed this? The rainbow is God's reminder to himself. God said to Noah, in 6.13, God said to Noah, an end to all flesh is coming before me, for the land is filled with violence. What's the cause of the destruction? What's the, why is the flood come? The Hebrew word here is violence, Hamas. Sounds just like the word Hamas that y'all know. Hamas. Human violence is the reason for the flood. Violence is what happens when humans seek unity apart from God. Humanity was commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land with his image and glory, but instead they fill it with violence. Their own endeavors, their own unity apart from him. This is where also knowing other ancient flood stories becomes really important. Because there's this idea of ancient storm gods in these other flood stories. It was very prominent during this time. And these storm gods, they would rear up against each other and wage war with one another. They would use rain and hail and light and clouds and thunder and floods to wage war with each other and on humanity. The Epic of Gilgamesh, the Enuma Elish, these are ancient stories that talk about these storm gods battling it out with one another. They were really well known during this time. Many of them, there were many of them. And so this is where another Hebrew word's important. It's the word keset. Keset is the word for bow, as in bow and arrow. But keset in Hebrew, believe it or not, is the same exact word used here in the Hebrew text for rainbow. So hang with me here. This is gonna blow your mind. It's astounding. What happens then in Genesis 9 is that God, we're getting this picture of God, the God of Israel, who acts differently than all the other gods of the time, than all the other storm gods. They continue to wage war with each other and wage war on humanity. These storm gods are acting and waging war with one another, but God takes his cassette, his weapon, his bow, and he hangs it up in the sky, and he says, I'm done with violence, it's over. God, our God is different. After the flood in this post-Diluvian context, God looks at humanity still full of violence and instead of waging war on them again after the flood, he hangs up his bow, his weapon. He hangs it in the sky. 
not shooting lightning or arrows from it, no more violence from God, it's over. He makes a promise with the land, I will not destroy you again because of human violence. He's done with violence, God is. And he hangs up that bow as a reminder to himself that when humanity starts getting violent again and when humanity is increasing in its sin, when he is hurt by humanity over and over, he starts to get... I got to stop myself. The rainbow is God's weapon hung up in the sky as a reminder to God himself of the promise he made with the land, the creation. (laughs) And that promise benefits us. It's amazing, right? This story just blows my mind. We've missed it. Man, we've missed it. We've watered it down. That's the kind of thing we need to be teaching in Sunday school, not the like happy ark story, right? The rainbow stands as God's promise to never again destroy the land. Here in Hawaii, the rainbow state, the land of rainbows, we see them all the time. But they're not chiefly reminders to us, they're reminders to God. So when we look at them, let's think of them that way. These rainbows stand as God's promise to the land, a reminder of him to himself. Never again. Never again, God says to the land. Never again. Never again. What what never again do you need to hear in your life? What never again list do you need in your own life? Never again. Can I preach for a minute? Yeah? What never again do you need to hear? This was a never again we needed to hear. What never again do you need to hear? Never again will I go there, Lord. Never again will I pick up the bottle, Lord. Never again will I watch this or that, Lord. Never again will I eat this or that. Never again will I smoke this or that. Never again will I stay. Never again will I worry about this or that. Never again will I let this or that have control over me. Never again will I spend a day without praying. Never again will I buy that. Never again will I put up with that crap. Never again will I act that way, Lord. Never again, God. Never again. Never again will I say can't. (laughs) Never again will I become a slave to fear. Never again will I lack faith. I'm a child of God. God is faithful. Never again will I capitulate to weakness. I wait and I notice the Lord. Never again will I live as though Satan is greater than God. Never again, Satan's under my feet. Never again will I be weak-minded because I have the mind of Christ. Never again will I be a servant of bondage. For the Spirit lives in me, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from bondage. Yes, amen. Never again will I live as though I'm condemned. For we're in Christ, 
and there is no condemnation in Christ. Never again will I walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. For the Spirit's making me holy and empowers me to walk in the way of the Lord. Amen. Never again will I settle for less. Never again will I buy into the lie that I can't be holy. Never again will I think that loving my neighbor entails denying Christ. It doesn't. Never again will I choose violence over peace. Never again will I settle for milk when God promises me a feast. Never again will I choose shallow living over mature growing. Never again will I look back for my eyes are on Jesus. Never again will I walk by sight because I walk by faith. Never again will I choose preeminence. I want to point to him. Never again will I hesitate in the midst of adversity because I yield my life to the truth. Never again will I look to the mediocre because I serve a king of kings. Never again will I stop because his truth is marching on. And never again will I live like he isn't coming back because he's almighty God, the promise keeper, miracle worker, light in the darkness, and he makes good on his word, amen? amen. I'm gonna calm down for a minute. Never again. Let's look at a few more verses. These are the last verses of the chapter. Amen, whoever said that. The sons of Noah who went out from the ship were Shem or the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the whole And Noah began to be a farmer and planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and got drunk. He was uncovered with his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders. They went in backwards. They covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backwards. They didn't see their, that's a, that's a weird way to say it. their faces were backwards. They didn't see their father's nakedness. But Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Canaan is cursed. He'll be a servant of servants to his brothers. And he said, blessed be Adonai, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. All the days of Noah were 950 years and then he died. End of story. So what in the world, right? We got all this stuff about a covenant and a rainbow and a flood and an ark, and then all of a sudden Noah's laying butt naked in the tent. What happened? It, he got drunk and passed out in his tent. He was, I'll tell you, Noah, we talked about last week, he was on the ark for a year, not 40 days before he's on the ark for a year. He was cooped up, Noah, in quarantine for a year with his wife and kids and all them, right? And when he came out, of, he just needed a drink when he came out of the ark, right? That's what he does. He needs a drink when he comes out of the ark. Anybody relate? Um, the, the whole scene is kind of wild, right? Um, 
But the biggest question everybody has about the why, why, why did he curse Ham's kid Canaan? And I, I could I could talk, I was gonna talk a lot about this. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go on about this, but I just want to touch on one thing. Um this is known as curse theory. And it's this idea, people, people use this passage right here, believe it or not, to say that black people are cursed. Where in, a, in a pre-civil rights era, American politicians were using this set of verses to talk about why black people should be slaves and why black people are cursed. The, the argument was that they're descendants of Canaan. The black people are descendants of Canaan. This is a, a bad part of American history right here, and it's based on these verses. This is largely, these verses right here, why we have racism in this country. But white people were making the argument that black people are sons of Canaan and that their blackness is the, is the sign of the curse that they have, that Noah put upon them. Curse theory. It's not true. <laughs> Obviously, it's not true. Um, first of all, Noah didn't put a curse on Ham. He put a curse on Ham's son, who was named Canaan. I think I have a few notes up here. I'm going to roll through this quickly. But it's argued that these descendants of Canaan were black, which is also not true. Because Noah, or I'm sorry, because if you see here, Ham actually, or Noah had four sons. I'm sorry, Ham had four sons. Canaan put Egypt in Cush. We spoke that last one, Cush, with a, a K. They're known as the Cushites. These are actually historically the Ethiopians. They're known as the Nubians or Ethiopians or the Cushites. And if you know, like I have a couple little Ethiopians rolling around here, they're black, right? So it was Ham's descendants, the Cushites, that had black skin, not the Canaanites. So you see, we make a big reading mistake again right there, and we use the text to try to justify something evil like racism. But it was the Canaanites, or the Cushites, not the Canaanites that are black. And so um, years ago, I actually edited a Bible dictionary, and here's the dictionary entry for that. The, the Cushites are the residents of the African region of Cush, which, is, which roughly corresponds to modern Ethiopia. So all the point that I'm trying to make to you here is that this is stupid. This is stupid. We've misread scripture again. And we've created racism in this country out of misreading scripture. And we've got to read scripture closely. Just like we've misread the rainbow. Stupid stuff happens when we read, misread scripture. So these, if you, if you read Numbers 12.1, Noah, or a Mo, um, uh, who is it? Moses, he marries this Cushite woman named Zipporah. And his sister Miriam gets ticked off. She curses Zipporah and Moses for marrying this Cushite, this black woman. And you know what happens when she curses? She gets leprosy. <laughs> if, if only all the people using the text had gotten leprosy, <laughs> you know? Um, so my, it was not the Cushites or the blacks that Noah pronounced a curse on, it was the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan. 
And if we read scripture correctly, what we see as we go throughout Genesis is that Israel is sent to overtake the land of Canaan and the Canaanites. And that's exactly what happens as Genesis plays out. So what was the curse of Canaan? That they would lose their land to the Israelites. Not that blacks are inferior. <sighs> so, we'll go there in a second. What's the deal? What, what, what's going on here? Why was Noah mad anyway about Ham coming in? It's another question. I want to wrap it up here. But here, here's the thing. In Genesis 3.21, God, he makes clothing to cover Adam and Eve. So that in Adam and Eve's nakedness, their shame isn't revealed. And when you read the story of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, what we see is that Shem and Japheth act righteously. They act in the manner of God, and they back in and they clothe their father without looking on his shame. Ham, however, goes in face forward and looks on his father's shame. He acts not like God. And that's why his descendants, the Canaanites, are cursed. And it brings me back to how I started, just talking about hand-me-downs. Here, Noah was without clothing. He was in a compromised state. And man, if you've ever found your parents in a compromised state, you know what that's like. You ever found mom or dad passed out? The image sticks with you a long time, maybe forever. It's like removing a veil and seeing who they really are. But two of three of but two of the three children of Noah, they have garments to cover their father. And so there's this sort of interchange where Noah had handed down to him, and he handed it on to his children but it was handed back to him. He received back his own hand-me-down. And it's the same word in Hebrew. And with the exception of Ham, it's a really beautiful scene, actually. The garments are handed down, so to speak. They're not left in the closet, sitting in the dark. And I think that many of us, we have a concern whether what we've passed down to the next generation or a friend or a family member or a child or a coworker or a teammate or whatever, whether it's going to be of any good or of any use. Will the good that I strived to hand on ever see the light of day in the life of this person? Or it's going to be, is it going to be hung in the closet or thrown under the bed or tossed out? Because the reality is, is the things that we say and think and feel and do, they have the potential for long-term influence. It's kind of scary, but it's also very powerful. And it convicts me as a parent myself. It makes me want to do better. A lot of days I fail. It convicts me as a teacher, as a pastor. And, and I'm going to end with this. I think the whole issue of hand-me-downs is interesting because we see it play, play out from Noah to Shem and Japheth. And what's really cool is that there's a one strand in Jewish thought. I love this. If you look at the Jewish lineage, you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. 
They're the three men who are thrown in the fiery furnace. You all know this story. They're the descendants of Shem, Noah's son. Do you remember what happens in the story? In that story, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace, what happens? Their clothes don't burn. Their garments don't burn. They were spared. Talk about hand-me-downs. The priests of Israel also come from the line of Shem. Look at their hand-me-downs, their priestly garments. And when John speaks of the Messiah, Jesus, in Revelation, guess how he describes him? Surrounded by a rainbow, clothed in glory, transfigured hand-me-downs. And we're his descendants as well. And so the bottom line is this, it's simple. Wear God because nothing else fits. Wear God and never again change your clothing. Wear God because it's the only outfit that you can simultaneously wear and hand down. Wear God because nothing else fits. Or as Paul put it in Romans, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provisions for the desires of the flesh. And that is something we should all hand down. Amen? Stand and let me bless you as you leave today. Turn your palms upright and receive this blessing. And now, brothers and sisters, as you go from this place, put on Christ and nothing else, because nothing else fits. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.